invite you to take your Bible and make your way to the book of Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is where we're going to find our text here this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse number 7. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 down through verse 7. The title of the message is that our rock is Christ alone. Our rock is Christ alone. And uh, one thing I love about the Old Testament is there is, is obviously the tie to the New Testament. Uh, you understand that when you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, Christ is the center of both of them. There are many people who think that Christ is, uh, well, he's just New Testament, right? But without the Old Testament, you don't really understand who this Christ is because the Old Testament is the foundation. We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school today. It's the context behind the New Testament. And there's some connections here that I think are, are beneficial for us as we look at the children of Israel. As we read through and we see the children of Israel, there are many lessons we learn from them uh, and how God interacted with them. And so I pray to bring out a few things today that would encourage us and remind us of some things that would, would help us in our Christian life. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 down through verse number 7. Notice the scripture says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa or Meribah, and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, there's many pictures and titles given to the Lord that convey a message to his people. He is seen in the scriptures as the light. He's seen as the good shepherd. He is seen as the bread from heaven. He's seen as the lamb of God. All of those titles, all of those pictures and descriptions, they communicate a message about who the Lord is and what he does. And here's another one that I think is a great picture and description of our great God, and that is that God is a rock to his people. He is the rock for his people. What is meant by this when I say that Christ is our rock? What do we know about rocks in this world? Well, a rock is something that is strong, something that is firm, something that is stable, something that is enduring. We build our homes upon rock, not upon sand. And for good reason, right? Rocks are foundational. Rocks are something you can trust in, in, in holding up. And so a rock brings a great picture of our God as the strong dependable, enduring God over his people. And that is what you'll see the scripture 
communicates to us today in this text, but also in other texts. Now, just to give you a little background, because I know we're not in the book of Exodus, and, and so I don't want to have you in the dark here, but we know that, that the Israelites in our text, they're, they're in their wilderness journey. God has delivered them from the bondage of Egyptian slavery. And he did this with a clear manifestation of power and glory, bringing plagues upon Egypt and, 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 and protecting his people through them. He put their gods to an open shame. He, he brought them out, and even when they looked like they were done for at the Red Sea with the army of the Egyptians behind them, God did the impossible, splitting the Red Sea causing them to walk across on dry ground. I mean, can you just imagine witnessing and experiencing such a miracle as this from God? Destroyed the Israelite army, brought them on to the other side. And even after seeing all of these marvelous things in Egypt and at the Red Sea, and, and even from, um, from that time up till now, the Israelites still struggle with doubt and disobedience to God in various ways. They still struggle with understanding who God is to them and what he's doing for them. And so despite all of that, we learn some lessons through them and learn some things about God. And so I want us to see a few things that show us that God, which is Christ, is our rock, and we see that he was also Israel's rock, though they didn't truly recognize it and believe as they ought to believe at the time. There's three points I want to bring to your attention about Christ as our rock that I glean from this text in particular. One is that Christ, firstly, he is our sovereign rock. He is our sovereign rock. What does that mean? We're not foreign to the truth of God's sovereignty. I hope not. If you're in this church, you're going to hear that quite a bit. <laughs> it means that God is in control and has all power and authority over absolutely everything. There's not one inch, not one, uh, not one instance in which God does not have control over or power and authority over. And we see this in the history of God's people here in ancient Israel. And the first thing I'll note about Christ as our sovereign rock is that it is his providence here. It is his providence that brought the people to this place. And this is so important for us as Christians to understand because of what they're experiencing at this place. They're experiencing a situation that makes them doubt, that makes them upset, that makes them uh, discouraged, that makes them wonder what's going on, and, and even causes them to murmur and complain. As you look at the Israelites coming to the place, how'd they get there? Who is leading them through this wilderness journey? As they wandered about, following, or are they wandering about just following their own hearts and being led by, or are they being led by someone greater? We know the answer. They're being led by someone greater. They're not just following the random whims of, oh, let's go east, let's go west, let's go north. They're being led to this place. They're being led by a special miracle, in, in fact. One that I, another that I think would be fascinating to see. If you read Exodus 13, verse 21 in our notes, we see how God was leading his people. The Bible says the Lord went before them. By day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way, 
and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel day and by night. You imagine seeing that. I mean, in the middle of the day, there's this pillar of cloud, and their call is to follow that pillar of cloud. That's the, that's the, that's the visual presence of the Lord for them, to follow him. And then at night, we know how light and fire radiates the darkness, right? Imagine the beauty of this pillar of fire at night that is there showing the presence of God with his people and leading them in the direction as they traveled at night. So they're not being led by random chance or circumstance. They're being led by providence. They're being led by a sovereign God, by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And so he's majestically guided them out of Egypt, and he's continually guided them in the wilderness into the unknown. And thus we read in verse 1, where do we find this? Look at this. The congregation of the people of Israel moved from the wilderness of sin by stages according to what, church? The commandment of the Lord. According to the commandment, of the Lord. So under God's leadership here, the people are brought to a place where a great problem is right in front of them. And what is that problem? There it is in verse 1. They come here by the commandment of the Lord, but there's a caveat here to this place. But there's no water for the people to drink. There's no water for the people to drink. Now, we all know how important water is, right? You can't live without it. You have to have water or you're going to die. And if you, especially if you're in the desert, say the wilderness of sin and the wilderness of Judea and this area where they're at, you get thirsty pretty quickly. doesn't take long. You've got to have it. And remember, too, that this is no small number of people who need water. Some estimate that this could be anywhere around 2 million Israelites that needed water, based on other texts and calculations of how many in family. Now, that varies. Some think there was much less than that. Some think there was probably about 2 million. But even say there's 30,000 people there. Is that a small number of people who need water? No. You think about the need here. It's not one person or two people, but it is a vast multitude. And now that they've gotten thirsty, guess what they're doing? They're complaining that they're on the point of death. Because there's no water here. You know, usually we kind of hear this complaining every night when we put our kids down to bed. Kids love to make any excuse to not go to bed. To stay up as long as they can. And one of their greatest ones is, oh, I'm thirsty. They've been down, but, oh, i got to get up and get water. So we just start sending water with them to bed. You don't have a reason now to get up, right? But poor little Spurge, you know, he can't get up and get water. But Bethany put him down last night and... I heard him in the other room about 10 minutes later, water, water, water. So she came and gave him water about two minutes later. Water, 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 thirsty. And by then we know he's just messing with us. He's, he's doing his best to avoid the shut eye. But children give us great examples, and so do the people of Israel. We see the Israelites doing the same thing. And we see it repeatedly through the book of Exodus. The difference is, this isn't one child in the crib yelling for water. That we can handle some nights. This is a vast multitude of people who demand we've got to have water to drink. And so in verse 2, what do we see? What do they do? The Bible says they quarreled with Moses. What's it mean to quarrel with someone? It means to, to strive and struggle with them. 
So they're not in a physical fight or anything, but bear, bear in mind, Moses is getting an earful. <laughs> He's getting an earful from this crowd. They're, there's a verbal struggle, and so they're saying, give us water to drink. They're, this is their command, give us water to drink. I guess they thought Moses had some kind of superpower just to pop water out of the sky, maybe. Not so. You know why? Because Moses wasn't their rock. Moses is just a man. And here's one of the great, great things we have to guard against. It's easy to want to lean on tangible people when you have to understand that we're meant to lean on the invisible and all-powerful God. Because there's no real person in this world who can be your rock, so to say, that keeps you for all of forever, right? Now, we may have certain people we lean on, and that's good. You may lean on your spouse. You may love them and trust them, and you need them in your life. We, we may reference them in that way. But your actual rock that for your life, because you understand, your spouse is going to leave you. Those who you trust in and depend on your life, you might leave them or they might leave you. They're not here forever because we're mortal beings. But we have an immortal rock, and his name is Jesus. His name is Christ Jesus the Lord. And here's what we have to understand is this, is that to truly follow the leadership of God and be content in our life, it always involves faith. You can't live the Christian life without it. Faith is believing and trusting God even in what we don't see, and especially in regard to our future that is in the unknown and uncertain. Because guess what? The Israelites here, they're in a journey where God has called them to. They have no clue what's ahead of them. Sure, they've heard about this promised land, but guess what? They're in the day-to-day, where's our water? Where's our food? See, all of God's people must understand this, that God is the sovereign rock on which their lives are founded. And we, as the people of God, we are called to trust him in all things, even the things that we don't comprehend and understand. Because that's really where faith is tested. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you'll hear me quote this verse a lot because it's dear to my heart, and it should be dear to all of our hearts. Trust in the Lord with what? All of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. This is providential that Israel's brought to this place. And it's providential that you're in the place you're in right now. And I don't always know what that is. You do. But it's providential. Spurgeon rightly said this, The night of affliction is as much under the arrangement and control of the Lord of love as the bringing of summer days when all is bliss. Whether it's mountaintop or valley in your life, God's providence has brought you there. But notice with me letter B regarding his providence and sovereignty is that his purposes for this, his purposes teach the people in this place. There's a lesson to be learned. Someone rightly said, never waste a good trial. How do you waste a good trial when you don't learn from it? That's the point of them. Why did God bring them to this place with no water? Would God do that? Absolutely. He did it. <laughs> he, we see it. He did it right here. Of course he would, and for good reason. Why does God allow or bring any kind of affliction or hardship upon his people? The answer is to put their faith to the test. 
You understand that God allows and brings hardship on his people. You say, well, I don't know if God would ever do that. You ever read the book of Job? We often think, well, Satan did all that. Who put Job's name before Satan? God did. God put Job before Satan. Hey, Satan, have you considered him? And then we see the, 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 the story unfold. God allows and brings trials for a reason. And they're always a good reason. Now, you understand, God does not do random things. God does and says certain things for the purpose of teaching his people what they need to learn. All of the Christian life is a growing experience. You never get to a point where you're done growing. You're not ever going to get to a point where, you know what, I've gone through all the trials I need to go through, I've learned all I need to go through, and never a trial again. Nope, that's just not how it goes. You're either going through one or you're about to go through one. That's just how the Christian life is. We have to prepare and make our minds ready for that. But understand, God wants us to learn. We see other examples in Scripture where God says or does certain things to teach his people something they need to see and understand. One example I think of, this isn't by way of trial, but just to see their spiritual condition, is Adam in the Garden of Eden after he had sinned. This has always popped out to me, and I, I think it's intriguing. God comes in the garden after they had sinned, and they're hiding in, uh, behind the, the leaves in the, in, the, in the forest or whatever, behind the bushes. In Genesis 3.9, we read, The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Why'd the Lord come at that particular time, and why'd he ask that particular question? Isn't the Lord omniscient, and he knew exactly where they were? Absolutely. God didn't need to know where Adam was. See, the Lord didn't call to Adam for the Lord's sake, but he called for Adam's sake. Adam needed to know where Adam now was. He was, not, he was no longer in open, pure, clean fellowship with God. He was hidden, separated. He needed to learn this and see now what sin had done for him. Another example is that of Abraham, which we could say is a trial in a sense. You remember the Lord's call to him in Genesis 22? Take your son, your only son, whom you love. I want you to go to the land of Moriah, and I want you to take him up to the top of the mountain, and I'm going to show you, and I want you to sacrifice him there. That'd be a trial for me. It'd be a trial for all of us. Your only son, whom you love that you've waited for many years for. And just as he's about to go through with it and slay his son as God had commanded him, in Genesis twenty-two twelve, we read, he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Wait a minute. You saying God learned something there? No, not at all. God already knew Abraham feared and would go through with this. But through this, Abraham learned how deep and how far faith must be willing to go and that God always provides for that which he demands. Because God provided the lamb to be slain for a sacrifice there instead of his son. And what a picture of the gospel of Christ that is. When it comes to the Israelites in this passage, we see later in scripture that God led them to certain places to teach them about who he is and who they are. Listen to Deuteronomy 8 and verse 16. God says to them who fed you in the wilderness with manna. He's reminding them of these things. That your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. That's right. It's key right there. To humble you, to test you, to do you good in the end. 
And we've heard the verse quoted all the time, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work for, together for good for those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, all things work together for good, but the things we experience may not be good in and of themselves at the moment. It may be sour, may be bitter, but the end that it's working towards is indeed good. You see, God's testing is never bad for his people. It is always for the betterment of his people. When we look at the Israelites here, how are they doing in their testing? Well, they're not doing so good. They're not, they're, they don't respond with, you know what, Moses? We're not sure what the Lord's doing here, but we trust him. We'll just wait, pray. No, they go right into grumbling. They go right into accusation. They go right into to, to the, the sinful nature in them. And it seems that they easily and quickly forget God's plan for them and God's power over them. Are we much different? <laughs> you ever wonder why God gave us so many accounts of, of the Israelites? Because we have the same human nature they did. We're prone to be forgetful of the goodness of God and what he's done for us in our life, what he continues to do. In verse 3, what do we see them doing? They're complaining, they're murmuring. And in verse four, verse 2, we see Moses says, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? You understand that ultimately, we got to understand this, that complaining against the Lord is to complain against his providential hand. Now, that's a hard lesson to learn. Complaining against the Lord is complaining against his providential hand over us. You see, testing is what truly teaches us and molds us into who we ought to be, which is who, who is it that we are aiming to be like? It is to be more like Christ. And I want you to see just a little example here in the New Testament. If you turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you would look at verse number 2 through 4 for a moment. James, the letter of James is written to Christians. Believers, those who know Christ, it's very practical in nature. Very good book to read through, to study. I'm sure I'll preach through it eventually. Verse 2 through verse 4. Notice what James tells these Christians. He starts the letter this way. This is the beginning. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does James tell them to do with various trials? He says, count it all joy. When's the last time we counted it joy with a trial that we went through? That's not our first instinct, is it? Probably the last instinct. I mean, you have something, hardship is... Anything. Maybe you got a flat tire on the side of the road. What's our first response? I'm grumbling. <laughs> That's just me. I'm usually grumbling. Why do I have to have that nail? Why do I have to hit that curb? Whatever happens. It's usually a nail. I don't hit curbs. Just ask my wife. I'm kidding. I have hit a curb. And uh, it ain't pretty. But I don't count those kind of things as all joy. But you think about the other bigger things. He says various trials, so this includes a variety of things that we and I may go through. He says, count it all joy. That seems upside down from an earthly perspective, but from a spiritual perspective, we can see why we should count it all joy when it's actually for our betterment and not for our worse state, not for doing bad to us. 
Notice that James says the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And ultimately that grows into the full effect of Christian maturity. And the more mature you grow in your Christian life, the more likeness of Christ that you'll be. We grow into a better state than before because of our testing as we trust the Lord. All the while, this testing is molding us more and more in the likeness of Jesus. And our call as God's people is to recognize the sovereign hand of God in all of our testing because Christ is our sovereign rock. Benjamin, Benjamin Warfield rightly said that a firm faith is the universal prov- in the universal providence of God is the solution to all of our earthly troubles. If you don't believe in the providence of God, you're going to have a hard time trusting him with the things that you go through. Understanding and believing in the providence of God in all things is absolutely crucial to the Christian walk. Notice with me number two. Not only do we see that Christ is our sovereign rock, he's the one who led Israel here, but he's also our supplying rock, meaning that he's the one who gives us all that we need when we need it. Look at this. We think about Israel in a twofold way of what they needed from, from their bondage of Egypt to the promised land. Notice firstly that Christ supplied the man to lead them out of their bondage. He supplied them Moses. He called them. He called Moses for them. While the people were, were seeing a clear manifestation of God in the pill in the cloud, God chose a man to be out in front leading the way for them. His name is Moses. Remember the calling of Moses? Look at, the, look at Exodus chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 7 through 10. Exodus 3, verse 7 through 10. I, I love the call of Moses. I love this, this account. But you notice what God tells Moses. Because Moses, he's out there minding his business, shepherding his flock. But when God calls somebody, there's something that grabs hold of them. And it's him. Exodus 3, verse 7 through 10. Look at this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of, the land, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, God could have just struck all the Egyptians dead and said, okay, go out. Could have done that, couldn't he? But he didn't. He's called Moses out to be the person out in front of them and lead them into the promised land and through the wilderness. You see, this calling comes to Moses uh, through this burning bush. And I mean, it's, the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. It's a miracle in itself. God's presence is here with Moses. And he says to Moses, I'm going to deliver them, and you're going to be the guy I use to bring that about. The Israelites were called to follow him as he followed the Lord. Now, we know they didn't accept Moses at first, did they? And as you can see here in our text... They had quite a time with him at various instances, didn't they? In fact, we find that they wanted to get rid of him. Moses goes to God and says, what do I do with these people? They're about to stone me to death over the water. Stephen, in his sermon, recalls about Moses' interaction with the people. 
Acts 7.35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel appeared to him in the bush. You see, if God hadn't supplied Moses to lead their deliverance from Egypt, what would have been their state? They would have just still been there, right? This was God's means to deliver them from a miserable life of slavery and labor. You see, God always, through history, has provided a man to lead his people. He provided them Moses. And after Moses, who was it? Joshua. You get into the land of Israel, you have the judges that God would raise up. And then he raised up kings like David and, and Solomon. He raised up prophets for the people to know God and hear his declaration. We get to the New Testament and we see he raised up specific apostles and, and prophets. And now in this present age, what does he do? He raises up pastors and evangelists and missionaries. We read this about the church in Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Yeah, I read that and I see God's work in that and I rejoice in the many men God has used to help me in my spiritual life. And I know that you do too. What do we see in our text with the man of God provided for Israel? In verse 3, they complained like they did in the past. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Just think about that accusation for a moment. I just Sometimes I sit back and look at what they say and I just have to laugh at it. It's almost humorous. Like, how can you be so blind here? The Lord went through all the activity of plaguing Egypt, overcoming overcoming the Egyptians, splitting the Red Sea, bringing a vast number of people out so he could watch them die of thirst in the wilderness. It's ludicrous. It's a ludicrous proposition. But so often we think the same way, but maybe in different ways. We've seen God do wonderful things on our behalf in our Christian life, just even in salvation itself. I mean, that's enough, right? And then we come to certain things and we think, what in the world's God doing? Why am I here? I don't see an out to this. You see, this kind of thinking is what leads them to nearly stoning Moses. They have forgotten God's call on Moses, his life, and they're ready to just take back over. And we've got to remember as believers that, that God did not bring us where we are in our Christian life, and then somehow he's going to forsake you. You know what he tells us in the New Testament? He says to his Christians that are suffering, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know what never means? It's a Greek word that means never. There, there's your scholarly insight for today. It means never. There's no end. There's no possibility of God forsaking his own. It's just not, not even a possibility. So, so as long as you have, you have breath, you understand, God is still at work in you in ways that you don't see. And even if his providential plan takes you to the grave, guess what? God's still good and you're better off. Because death is only a gateway, an instant gateway to the glorious presence of Christ. Letter B, notice that Christ, not only did he supply the man to lead them, he also supplied the waters to sustain them. And now here's we see the wonderful miracle. The miracle here. With Moses' request, God makes clear how they're going to have their needed water supplied to them. In verse 5 and 6, we read, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, 
And take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now, just consider this. This whole thing playing out. Moses says, all right, elders of Israel, let's go over here to this rock in Horeb. And I'm going to stand on that rock, and I'm just going to hit it with my stick. And you're going to see water come out. Can you imagine standing there, watching Moses actually strike that rock, and then water comes out of a rock? Does water normally come out of a rock? No. It comes out of a spring, or it's in rivers and streams and that sort of thing. But out in the desert in the middle of nowhere... Strike a rock and water comes out. And you think about how much water would be needed to satisfy the thirst of so many people. A large amount of water. We read in a parallel passage, or the psalmist recalls this, in Psalm 78, 15 and 16. It says, he split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly. Abundantly. As from the deep, he made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. That gives you some imagery there of this event. It was a miracle that only God could perform. Sometimes we enter situations where only a miracle from God is really going to supply what we actually need. And guess what? God's not beyond miracles. I'm not saying you ought to just name it and claim it like many today. There's many who say, well, you can just name it and God will give you a miracle. That's not how it works, friend. God's miracles are in accordance with his providence, and we have no right to demand them. Now, we may pray for them, but we have no right to demand them. But one principle we understand from this text is that God is the rock who supplies what his people need when they need it. Now, sometimes we think we need something when we don't really need it. God gives us what we need when we need it. You know why? Because his providential timing is always on time. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. David said in Psalm 37, 25, I have been young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. So often we get anxious and worrisome over things that We think, man, I wish this wasn't happening right now, or maybe God should take care of this right now. But what we don't realize is that they're already taken care of, it's just not in your time. (laughs) Think about that. God had brought them to this place, knew they'd be thirsty, knew they would have no water, but he already had decreed he's going to give them water. He's going to glorify himself through this. Therefore, the central point here is that their lack was faith. They did not trust God to provide for them. When he's already told them, I'm bringing you to a land beyond this place, they had a promise to cling to. And here's what we need to realize and understand in principle, is that Christ takes care of his own. Matthew 6, 31 through 32, listen to this, when he's teaching on provisions, teaching on daily necessities and needs. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying... What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What concerns you right now is not a surprise to God. It's already part of his plan, so therefore trust him with it. 
and know that he will provide what you need when you need it. Letter, letter three, or number three. Boy, I'm getting my letters and numbers mixed up. I better hurry up. Number three, Christ is our saving rock, and this is the foundation to everything else. He is the one who delivers his people. Letter A, Christ saves his people. Just, just, just chew on that for a moment. Christ saves his people. Now, we see salvation in a couple different senses here. The water from the rock in the wilderness saves them from dying in the wilderness. There's a physical deliverance here for them because if they don't have water, they're going to die. Sure, that's the physical side of this. We're created and sustained by water and food. Without them, we will die. The Israelites had a legitimate concern, but not a legitimate reason for doubt. God provided the water for them to drink, just as he provided the manna from heaven for them to eat. God saved his people physically and would not allow them to be destroyed in the barren desert when he told them he's taken to the promised land. But more important than that, more important than that, there's a greater picture here of eternal salvation that is found in Christ alone. And if Christ is not your rock for your eternal salvation, you don't have a foundation worth standing on. The Israelites needed physical deliverance. Sure, everybody in this world wants to be delivered from peril. But more important than that is eternal deliverance. What good is it if you live a long, happy, wealthy, happy life, but then you die and perish in your sins? There's not much good there. Look with me at the Bible in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. Look at this connection that Paul the Apostle brings to our attention. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 4. I want you to see this. I love, I, I love how the, many of the examples in, in accounts of the Old Testament, they're directly said to be pictures of Christ. They're directly tied to him. Verse 1 through 4, notice this. That Paul writes to the church, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Christ. That rock was Christ. Now understand, he's speaking in spiritual terms here, okay? Because when we read the account, we see physical. They want they need physical water. But he's brought, giving a, a deeper picture here. That the spiritual rock here is Christ. And this is the picture and truth of the whole message. That Christ alone is the rock of his people. And only Christ, only Christ can save sinners from their sins. Only Christ can give spiritual life to those who once were dead in trespasses and sins. And to have spiritual life, we must drink from the spiritual rock, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. Another great parallel here comes from John chapter 4. Verse 13 and 14, where the woman at the well, Jesus is talking to her and tells her about this living water that you'll never have, you'll never thirst again if you have the water I have. 
And in her mind, she's got physical, 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 right? Jacob's well. And she just, she's probably tired of coming out there drawing water. <laughs> it's a laborious task. And so she says, sir, give me this water. I, I want this water. I said, I'll never have to come back here again. But here's what Jesus said, John 4, 14. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsted again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus isn't talking about Jacob's well. He's talking about the well of Jesus. Spiritual life in him. Here's another great connection. How does Christ save his people? How do they receive this spiritual water? The answer is seen in this account of Moses and Israel. What did God tell Moses to do at the rock? He told him to take his rod and strike the rock. Hit it with force. Strike the rock and water will come out. You say, well, what does that have to do with anything? You understand that for salvation to be given us in Christ, Christ our rock first had to be struck. He had to be smitten. He had to be smitten, struck by a blow, just as this rock in the wilderness. Was he struck with a rod? Most surely he was. Christ was struck with the rod of God's wrath and justice on sin as he hung there on the cross, bleeding and dying the most painful death we could imagine. And here's what we see prophet Isaiah prophesies about Christ's death on the cross. And I love the language as it ties it all together. Isaiah 53, 4, speaking of Jesus. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And why is it that he did this? He did this on behalf of his people. With Christ's stricken body and blood poured out, he brought salvation to his people just as it was foretold of him that he would save his people from their sins. So you see from the text today, Old Testament and New, that Christ alone is the rock of salvation. There is no saving rock but him. And if your faith rests in any other foundation, it's really no foundation at all. It is only sand, and it will deteriorate and not hold up against God's judgment. But if your faith is rested on Christ alone, you have a rock that's immovable and unshakable and that can never be undone. So we see Christ saves his people. But notice also from our text, in regards to salvation, he also strengthens his people. Not only has he saved me, but you understand that the source of my strength for all of my Christian life is not in me, it's in Christ. We like to think that we're strong and we can accomplish much, but you know, I want you to understand, I can't do anything without Christ, neither can you. That's what Jesus said in John 15, right? Abide in me, for without me you can do what? Nothing. We learn from example in Israel that once they had the rock here, it gave them strength. The psalmist later would write of this encounter in Psalm 95, verse 7 through 9. He says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, 
and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at where? Meribah. Where is the Israelites in our text? They're at Meribah. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my word. You know what he's saying? Don't harden your heart, but rather believe and trust in God your rock. Don't be like the Israelites who came to Meribah and hardened their heart and did no longer believe and trust in what God was doing. Rather, believe and trust in what he, who He is. He is your Savior. He is your rock. That is applied to the Christians in the Old Testament. It is applied to the Christians in the early church. And it applies to you and I today. We are to remember who our God is and who we are. One last text I'll read to you, and it's in Psalm 18, 1 through 2, just to show you one other passage that communicates this beautiful picture of who God is to us. David. Did David ever go through trials? Absolutely. Most of the Psalms are about his trials of various kinds. But here's the conviction that's at the center point of David's heart. Verse 18 and verse 2. I mean, excuse me, chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is what? My rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God. And notice he repeats it. My rock. Says it twice. My rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Christian, can you say the same today? Do you say the same? Christ is our rock, and I think it imperative that we never forget it. We must live knowing day by day that today Christ is my rock, tomorrow Christ is my rock, next week is Christ is my rock, next year Christ is my rock. Till the day I die, Christ is my rock. And once I do die, I'm entering into his presence. <laughs> and, and there's nothing better than that glorious truth. Christ is our rock. But today, maybe you don't know Christ as your rock. Maybe your foundation is built on sand. Maybe your faith is not set in Christ alone. May I say to you that you must repent and believe on Christ alone. He is the only Savior of sinners. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And you will find no hope, no rest, no salvation, no peace outside of Christ alone. God commands you and he calls you to recognize your sinfulness for what it truly is. Recognize his holiness for what it truly is. And to believe on the one who died for sin and rose again. Repent and believe. And you'll know the rock who will keep you for life and eternity. Let us stand to our feet as we have a closing song and prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the word of God and what we've seen in the text of Scripture. We thank you for the examples that we see in Israel's history. We thank you for the connections we find in the New Testament that tie everything together and point us to Christ Jesus. How glorious he is. How marvelous, how wonderful. He truly is the rock of his people. And I'm so thankful for that. 
I pray that you would remind each and every one of your people here today that he is their rock. It is easy for us to go through times of doubt and discouragement and wondering what's going on in your providence, but our call is to trust you and to remember who you are and who we are. And if there is someone here today under the sound of my voice that does not know Christ as their, their rock, I pray, Father, you would convict them of their sins. Show them their desperate need of salvation in Christ alone. Bring them to saving faith as only you can, that they may know Christ the rock of their life and eternity. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.